Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you, considering the fact that I've written a few detective novels, that I'm a big fan of crime fiction. I'm a big fan of true crime as well. When you think about uh, the, the popularity of true crime stories now, it's, it's crazy. These used to be off to the side. You used to think people who were too interested in that stuff were maybe uh, there was something wrong with them, or they were studying technique for their own crimes. But now it's pretty common that we all derive a lot of uh, interest and fascination from this. The classic of the true crime genre, uh, Fatal Vision, which came out when I was a kid. It's about a famous case of Jeffrey McDonald, who is the Green Beret, who was accused of murdering his family and then blaming it on hippies back in the early 70s. And it's a case that's remained fascinating because he's always maintained his innocence, although he was convicted of the crime. The documentarian Errol Morris actually wrote a book about this, which is strange because he's a filmmaker, but he wrote a book about the case talking about all the problems that he saw in the way that the investigation was conducted. The title of his book is A Wilderness of Error. A Wilderness of Error. And what the title is alluding to is is the fact, and this is a common trait in a lot of these cases, that if the early moments of the investigation of the quest for truth are botched, if mistakes are made early on, then over time it becomes really difficult to go back and piece together what actually happened. But those early mistakes will tend to cloud and obscure the facts of the case, to hide the truth from our eyes, so that when you go back 10 years, 20, 30 years later, it can seem uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to recover the truth of what actually took place. As I think about that title, I'm reminded of Dante's words at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, the the line that he opens with when he describes himself in a dark wood wandering. That's often taken as a metaphor for middle age life. We're kind of wandering through life, not knowing where we're going. But I think it suggests the way that all of life, not just criminal investigations, but all of life has this wilderness character to it. The way that mistakes, when they're made, tend to obscure the truth. So that we find ourselves in a dark wood wandering. We find ourselves in a wilderness of error, oftentimes puzzled over what's true and what's not. Having a hard time discerning what actually happened versus what was manufactured. Truth and lies. Calvin's metaphor for this phenomena, I think is really helpful. You find it in your order of worship in that third quote. He describes this sensation as a labyrinth of superstitions. He says, Satan has from the beginning deceived miserable mortals and withdrawn the simple and unwary from the true God and entangled them in a labyrinth of superstitions. Whoever desires to perform all the duties of a good and faithful pastor ought firmly to resolve not only to abstain 
from all impure doctrine and simply to assert what is true, but also to detect all corruptions which are injurious to religion in order to recover men from the deceptions of Satan to carry on war with all superstitions. I think that's helpful in in several different ways. You think about the wilderness as a labyrinth of superstitions. It it does help because uh, in the first place, Calvin does something that these other metaphors don't. He puts his finger on the problem. Like he describes it as a labyrinth of superstitions. That is the problem. Superstitions are lies which purport to be the truth. Like they are deceptions, but they claim to be accurate. And as a result, they replace and they hide the real truth. They build up the walls of the maze that is the labyrinth, so what is actually true becomes difficult to discover because the superstitions seem right. Because they seem accurate. Because so many people believe in them and share them as if they were true. But it becomes difficult for us to tell the difference between the two. I think the metaphor is helpful for another reason. Not only because it puts its finger on the problem, but also the source of the problem, which Calvin identifies as Satan. Satan's desire to deceive. Satan, the embodiment of evil, who covers up the truth. He covers up the truth by encouraging idolatry. The superstitions that we're talking about here are idolatrous. They're lies, falsehoods, about God. You want to hide the true God, the best way to do it is to mix Him up with false gods. You hide true worship by mixing in a hodgepodge of false practices so that it becomes impossible for us to tell the difference between what we should do and what we shouldn't do. We walk away saying, who can know? Who can know what is true or what is right? If you go to Romans 1, the Apostle Paul has interesting things to say about the connection between sin and idolatry. So you read through Romans 1, and he talks about the wrath of God revealed against sin. There's a certain moment where he summarizes all human sin as a worship problem. He says the fundamental error that all human sin proceeds from is this categorical mistake of worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Like we are God's creatures, He made us, and He made us to worship Him. And idolatry is worshiping and serving something other than the Creator. So any creature, anything in creation, when we worship that thing, we're guilty of idolatry. The idea is that all sin has at its heart, at its root, this, this trajectory of false worship. So Paul says sin and idolatry are connected because we worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And then you think about the way throughout Scripture that Satan testifies. That Satan, let's say, uh, suggests other possibilities, other truths, superstitions. That Calvin is referring to Satan says, he's not God. This is God. Or, sure, he's God, but so is this. And all of these things are really important. Or, there is no God. That's, that's a myth. And all of these suggestions are deceptions that ultimately cloud the reality, the truth. But because we all worship something, 
By definition, if we take the Creator out of the equation, human beings who are made to worship will worship something in creation instead. We'll worship some creature. In other words, if we come to believe that there is no God, or we come to believe that we can't be sure which is the true God, then inevitably, we won't worship our Creator. We will worship some creature and be guilty of idolatry. So we see not only the nature of our problem, but also the source of our confusion, and also, interestingly, the solution as well. In Calvin's words, there is a solution when he talks about the responsibilities of a good pastor. I'm not saying you have one, but your pastor aspires to be good at any rate. And these are words that should bring me and really all of us under conviction that one who aspires to be a good pastor must not only proclaim the truth and its simplicity, but must also denounce corruptions and errors and call them out to people so they can recognize them. All of that is the ministry of God's Word, and that is the solution in Calvin's eyes and in mine as well. The, the simple light of Scripture is what brings clarity to all the deceptions. It simplifies the maze that collapses the labyrinth. The preaching of God's simple and clear Word brings light to the darkness, but also the promises contained in that Word are promises to destroy the labyrinth that we find ourselves in. And, and that's very clear in Zechariah 13. The promises found in these verses are promises that when fulfilled will change everything. There is a grace that is coming, Zechariah promises. And this grace will scour and cleanse the labyrinth of idolatry. And that blood will flow from the fountain opened by Christ's cross. If you look at our text, you'll see there, there are three movements, three things happening. You might imagine like, like water rushing through the world, and that water is accomplishing three things, one after another. First, the idols are cut off. The idols are destroyed. The objects of false worship are destroyed so that there is no memory of them. Secondly, though, our zeal for truth is restored. Not only are the idols wiped away, but our zeal for maintaining the truth is recovered. And then finally, we find an unexpected note. Even those who serve false gods find repentance. There is repentance even for the prophets of false god. Now those first two points, the end of idolatry and the zeal for truth, are echoed in Ezekiel's prophecies. Zechariah here is echoing the words of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 36, which links the cleansing atonement with the end of idolatry. People who are cleansed will be people who no longer worship idols. If you look at Ezekiel 36, this is verses 25-28, through 28, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. These are words we've just heard from Zechariah 13.1. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Those words, the heart of flesh, replacing the heart of stone, when you hear that, you think of of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration in the life of a believer, taking a, a dead heart and bringing it to life. But notice where that flows from. It flows from this idea of cleansing or atonement that results in your idols being cleansed from you. You're cleansed of uncleanness to be cleansed of uncleanness to be cleansed from false worship. We have to observe the connection between cleansing and the end of idolatry. Essentially, these are two different ways of talking about the same thing. The desire to be clean in the eyes of God is the desire to be free of our service and our worship of other gods so that we might be faithful to Him alone. And it's by putting the Holy Spirit in you. It's by pouring out His Spirit upon you that God gives you the ability to worship and serve Him. To do all the things that are described here. To walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. The power to do these things comes from the Holy Spirit who makes you a true worshiper and not a false one. And so the God's whole plan of salvation as Zechariah is revealing to us what it's all about and what it's going to look like. We see here that what it is is a plan to restore true worship and true worshipers. The restoration of zeal for truth is part of that, but zeal for truth is costlier than you think. You see, the zeal for truth described here, it is a very costly thing to be zealous for truth. You look in Zechariah 13.3, You read these words of parental discipline towards false prophets, and they're pretty incredible. If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. Unless you think these are just words, his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. think, wow, that's pretty harsh. But this promise of discipline is just a recapitulation of the teaching of Deuteronomy 13. You go back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 13. uh, This is verses 6 through 10. You'll read very similar words, although more all-encompassing. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. Neither you nor your fathers have known some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. You shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Lest you read words like that and dismiss that as just Old Testament barbarity, the Old Testament is full of crazy stuff like that, and you certainly don't want to live that way now. 
Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus says things like that, he creates all sorts of problems for the sentimental view of Christianity. For the sentimental Jesus who's just about family. The Jesus who just wants us to love other people unconditionally and has no other thought in mind about how we should live. And then Jesus says stuff like that and he sounds so Old Testament to our ears. It's kind of hard to understand what's going on. Because, I mean, who would say such a thing? Who would think such a thing? Who would do such a thing? What loving parent would put a point of religion ahead of their own child? Who would do it? When you're standing in the labyrinth that we find ourselves in, behavior like that is really hard to understand. And the only way to understand it is as cruelty, as barbarity, as some weird fanaticism that blinds you to the obligations of love. We all know people who have had strong Christian convictions, beliefs, but have softened those convictions and beliefs, in some cases, entirely abandoned them in order to accommodate loved ones. They have bent in order to accept those who are condemned in Scripture. And this is not exceptional, it's the norm. And when we see it, we applaud them recognize these accommodations are necessary in order to be loving. Reading a novel recently, James Lasden's Afternoon of a Fawn, and the narrator of this novel, kind of an offhand comment, says, people adapt their politics to their circumstances. People adapt their politics to their circumstances. And when I read that, I scribbled in the margin, and their theology too, with an exclamation mark. Because I've seen it again and again. You believe what you believe until you're tested, and then we find out what you really believe. When you're standing outside the labyrinth, things look different. We need to look at a passage like this, and words like this apply to parents, and recognize that this is not encouraging callousness toward a loved one. Rather, This is speaking of a commitment to truth that stands the test of the greatest possible temptation. When my enemies entice me and say, you should worship false gods, am I tempted? No, they're my enemies. If God says, you should stone any of your enemies if they tell you to worship false gods, I'm like, great, I'll happily do that. Cool, it'll be fun to stone people. When those you love encourage you to do this, when those who are, it says in Deuteronomy, as your own soul, encourage you to love other gods. That's a test. It's easy to be committed to the truth if that commitment is never tested. If everybody that you love and care about believes in Jesus Christ wholeheartedly with no reservation, if everyone that you love and care about, your entire family, worships Christ, and if anything encourages you, to worship him more, then congratulations, you should count yourself blessed and also rare. 
Because most of us in this room do not have that experience. Most of us love people, are committed to people, are in family relationships with people who encourage us all the time to stray, all the time to worship other gods. I know plenty of people who have failed that test. In order to secure a lesser love, they've been willing to to trade away their commitment to Christ and His truth or to abandon it entirely. You know such people as well. But as you think in your mind of people who've allowed this desire for other loves to temper their love for Christ, you think about them, ask yourself, have I done the same thing? The answer you'll find is yes. Yes, you have. We are all of us in this labyrinth. We are all of us being led astray. We are all of us struggling as we are tested to endure and to maintain a zeal for truth. You ask yourself, zeal for truth is going to require me to sacrifice a lesser love. Is it really worth it? That can be a hard question to answer. Because if you have to sacrifice things that matter to you, things that are important to you, things that you derive meaning from, that's not a trivial sacrifice. And to be asked to do that over what most people will tell you is just a fine point of religion and and is inconsequential, that can be difficult. But in the clear light of Scripture, the answer to that question is obviously yes. In the clear light of Scripture, obviously the answer is to be faithful to the truth. Standing in the labyrinth, it's easy to get lost. In the labyrinth, it's easy as well to lose yourself if you want to. To hide yourself in such a way that you can forget the call of truth in your life. We'll come back to that. First, it's not just zeal for truth that is more costly than you think. Repentance, too, is more costly than you think. It's fascinating to me that the final word on false prophets in Zechariah 6 isn't stoning and it isn't piercing. The final word on false prophets is repentance. The prophets mentioned in our text are false prophets. They're the servants of the false gods. They're the ones who encourage idolatry. In Israel, they did it by encouraging the people to integrate the worship of other gods into the worship of the true God. So they would go to the temple and worship, but they would also go to the high places and make sacrifices to the Canaanite gods as well. They would do all of those things, covering all of their bases. They had a kind of syncretistic religion, and there were prophets who claimed to speak the word of God given to them by God, who gave license to this idolatry and encouraged it. These are the prophets who are being called out here. And yet, even those servants of idolatry, there is room for repentance on their part, which I find glorious. Because I look at my own life and I wonder, like, when have I not only been an idolater, but when have I encouraged other people to believe lies? And, and I want to believe and cling to the possibility of restoration even for those who have actively served a lie. But there are some things to note about this repentance. Because there's a lot of easy repentance all around us. And not... Every false prophet who claims to be repentant actually is. Sometimes 
It's just another way of concealing the lie. So we're given in this final paragraph what you might think of as hallmarks of real repentance. So you can recognize what real repentance looks like, not just in the case of other people, but also in the case of yourself as well. You see in verse 4 that those who are truly repentant feel proper shame for what they've done. The prophets, we're told, will be ashamed of their prophesying. In other words, they won't make defenses. They won't be defensive of themselves. They won't make excuses for their false prophecy. They won't shift the blame for their idolatry or for misleading other people. They will own it and feel shame for it. I understand when we talk about shame, we always talk about shame as a thing that, that you ought not to feel. Right? If you're going to your therapist and you talk about your feelings of shame, more than likely the focus will be on overcoming those feelings as if the feelings were the problem rather than the source. But there are times where shame is an appropriate reaction to what we've done. And this is one of those instances where we have served other gods, where we have encouraged others to follow after other saviors, if we repent, we should feel a proper shame and want to distance ourselves from those actions and to judge them accurately as what they are, not try to defend them or excuse them. Those who truly repent also renounce their offices. You see this repudiation that the false prophet makes where he says, I am no prophet. I am not a prophet. He no longer puts on the hairy garment of the prophet and goes out and, and proclaims to be a prophet. He stops taking on the, the trappings of the office when he repents of his falsehood. False prophets don't repent and then transition to becoming true prophets. They don't lead you to worship a false god, repent, and then become your spiritual leader in the worship of a true god the next day. That's not how real repentance works, although it is often how repentance works now. We're surrounded by spiritual leaders who, who, who fall, who are publicly exposed for their hypocrisy or their falsehood. They repent, and then they go on to start new ministries and to lead more people in what is now supposed to be the truth. That's not a hallmark of true repentance. True repentance is accompanied by a proper shame, calling what you've done by its real name, but also a renunciation of the office. I am not a prophet. I was deceiving you. Also, those who truly repent welcome correction and acknowledge the damage done to self and to others. These final words of our text, this is verse 6, speaks of the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Interpreters struggle over the exact sense of these words. There's kind of two ways of taking this saying. So one of them is the idea that the wounds are wounds that the false prophet received in the worship of pagan gods. That there was kind of flagellation involved and as a result he bears these wounds. So when he's asked after his repentance, where did these wounds come from? He says, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends, meaning like the, the pagan temple. And his use of friends is a little bit ironic here. Sort of like, these are the wounds I received in the house of my so-called friends who actually did this to me. So he's acknowledging the damage of false worship. 
But there's another way to look at it, and, and to me, a more persuasive way, where the wounds that he's referring to uh, have more in common with like the piercings that have been mentioned earlier. Like the wounds that he's referring to are the, the wounds that brought him to repentance, the wounds of correction. And that now he views those who corrected him as his friends. That these chastisements were administered to me by people who were acting as my friends, whereas the people who did not chastise me were not showing me real friendship. Now, whichever one of those interpretations you find most compelling, there's arguments for either one. The, the point here is that one who is truly repentant looks upon correction differently. Like you acknowledge the damage of your false belief, of your false practices, but also you welcome criticism. You welcome correction because it places you back on the right path. One of the telltale signs of an insincere repentance is a hostility towards correction. We no longer want to hear about the bad things that we did. We just want to get on with it and have people praise us again. But real repentance involves a reorientation towards correction, where things that we would have seen as hostile, we now welcome as signs of friendship and care and love. Now, we imagine the barbarity of parents who, who take their false prophet son and, and pierce him. It's harder for us to imagine that son looking back on that moment with gratitude. That this was the moment when his parents reproved him and brought him to repentance. But that's what's happening here. That's real repentance. We are, of course, surrounded today with all sorts of prophets. Many people claiming to be prophets, claiming to speak for God. The modern prophets of the charismatic movement uh, have certainly done that and over the last year have contributed greatly to making this year a labyrinth of superstition. And as those prophecies have been tested and found wanting, tried and found not to be accurate, there's been a huge reassessment a lot of people writing about this sort of reckoning that's taking place in this movement, but it's a reckoning without a lot of repentance, judged in the eyes of Zechariah's criteria, because a real repentance of false prophets would see proper shame, a renunciation of office, and a welcoming of correction, not a rebranding and a relaunching of your ministry along similar but slightly different lines. We should beware of anyone who comes to us claiming to speak God's words because so often these are the very men and women who build the walls of the labyrinth meant to deceive us. There's one last thing. The last thing to note is actually the first thing in our passage. It's what happens in the first verse that we read, the fountain comes before the cleansing, not afterwards. This is probably the most important point that we're going to make. And my hope for this church, my hope for you, that as you hear this sermon, two things will happen. Number one, a desire will be kindled in you for a restoration of your zeal for truth. That you will have a desire to care more about the truth, to be unwilling to sacrifice it for lesser loves that you will be more 
zealous for the simplicity of worship as revealed in God's Word. That's one thing. The second thing is, I hope that this will kindle in you a desire for true repentance, even if it's costly repentance. That the costliness won't be a a dissuasion from turning from your sin, but maybe an encouragement to recognize that there is a, a, a real turning that is possible, even for false prophets. But this true prophecy of salvation in Jesus Christ that comes to us from Zechariah does not declare if you clean yourself up, if you forget your idols, if you repent in earnest, then I will cleanse you. Everything that we've been talking about so far could easily be misinterpreted as the conditions for cleansing. Like these are the things we must do in order to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. But verse 1 comes before verses 2 through 6. Everything that we've been looking at comes after the cleansing, not before. Not as conditions to the work of Christ, but as results flowing from that work. That is the most important thing to grasp. Hold on. It is God in Christ who opens up a fountain of forgiveness, of reconciliation in the cross of Christ. and He sticks us under the current. And that current washes away our sin. The zeal that we are called to, the true repentance that we ought to feel, all of those things flow from the river of grace as it washes through us and as it scours out our sinful cobwebs. This is all a work of God. Not a work that we do in order to please Him, but a work that He does in us in order to make us what we were created to be. Now, every kind of spiritualism, every kind of spiritual path or a religious way, every kind of false prophet will acknowledge to you, yes, life is a labyrinth, but I will guide you out of it so that you can find the way to truth. Follow me. Jesus comes to you in the labyrinth. He comes to you where you are and He carries you out on the flood of His grace and He smashes the walls of the maze as He goes. That is the power that brings true repentance. It is the power that brings true zeal for truth. And without that cleansing water, none of it is possible. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.